Welcome to the May 4th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, imbalances in gut microbiota may impact the efficacy and safety of immunochemotherapy in patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Overabundance of specific gram-negative bacteria correlated with poor treatment outcomes and febrile neutropenia, raising further questions about the impact of gut dysbiosis in this disease. Up next, the NF1A ETO2 fusion, found exclusively in pediatric patients with pure erythroid leukemia, impairs the normal process of erythroid differentiation. Furthermore, NF1A ETO2 cooperates with mutant TP53 to cause pure erythroid leukemia in a mouse model. Finally, a look at the effectiveness of nermotrelvir plus ritonavir in patients with CLL infected with SARS-CoV-2 during the Omicron surge. Treatment was linked to a lower rate of COVID-19-related hospitalization and mortality, with pronounced benefits in older and more heavily treated patients. Our first research article is titled, The Influence of Microbial Dysbiosis on Immunochemotherapy-Related Efficacy and Safety in Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma by Song Hyun Yoon of the Sung Kwayun Kwan University School of Medicine in Seoul, Korea, and colleagues. The gut microbiota is a diverse community of trillions of microbes residing in the gastrointestinal tract. The gut microbiota has an important influence on various aspects of immunity, including generation of regulatory T-cells and the functioning of natural killer cells. Interestingly, compositional and functional changes in the gut microbiota, referred to as gut dysbiosis, may compromise immune function and precipitate cancer development. To date, there have been multiple reports linking alterations in the gut biome to treatment outcomes in patients with blood cancers. In these studies, alterations in the gut biome have been associated with poorer outcomes in patients receiving anti-cancer treatments, such as cytotoxic chemotherapy, autologous stem cell transplantation, or immune checkpoint inhibitors. Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, is one such blood cancer where data is starting to emerge on the presence of gut dysbiosis and its influence on treatment outcomes. DLBCL is the most common subtype of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Patients diagnosed with DLBCL often require prompt treatment with immunochemotherapy, typically RCHOP, due to the aggressive nature of this malignancy. So, what is the role of the gut microbiota in DLBCL exactly? In one earlier study, investigators found that the majority of DLBCL patients had gut dysbiosis involving the proteobacteria phylum. That study didn't shed any light on the influence of gut dysbiosis on outcomes. However, a separate investigation in DLBCL and follicular lymphoma revealed that microbial dysbiosis was linked to aggressive histology and adverse clinical outcomes. Patients who responded to treatment tended to have greater gut microbiota diversity prior to treatment, though numbers in this study were small. Now, Yoon and co-authors report on the influence of microbial dysbiosis on treatment outcomes in 189 patients with newly diagnosed DLBCL, who were scheduled to receive immunochemotherapy. In this prospective cohort study, the investigators obtained stool samples at diagnosis and evaluated them with 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequencing and whole genome shotgun sequencing. 
Microbiome data from these patients was compared with data from healthy controls to determine whether specific characteristics of the microbiome were linked to treatment outcomes. Patients received RCHOP chemotherapy for up to six cycles, with prophylactic pegylated GCSF given in each cycle. The first aim of the study was to identify gut dysbiosis in DLBCL patients as compared to healthy controls. The authors found that compared to controls, patients with DLBCL had significantly lower alpha diversity, meaning less diversity within a single sample. In addition, the microbial makeup of the samples was significantly different between DLBCL patients and controls. Of note, DLBCL patients had a greater abundance of Enterobacteriaceae, a family of bacteria belonging to the Proteobacteria phylum, and they had a relatively lower abundance of short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria. Investigators also looked for associations between microbiome data and occurrence of febrile neutropenia during RCHOP treatment. They found a significant enrichment for Enterobacteriaceae in patients who did experience febrile neutropenia on RCHOP treatment as compared to those who did not. They also aimed to determine whether gut microbiota characteristics were associated with outcomes following RCHOP. Interestingly, there was a significant enrichment for Enterobacteriaceae members among patients who experienced relapse or progression as compared to those who maintained a response. A survival analysis demonstrated significantly worse progression-free survival among patients with a high abundance of Enterobacteriaceae as compared to those with a low abundance. Finally, they looked at cytokine profiles and found that Enterobacteriaceae-enriched microbiomes were linked to increased levels of interleukin-6 and interferon-gamma. In a commentary, Camille Bigenwald and Lawrence Zitvogel of Gustave Roussy in Villejuive, France, say this study shows that at diagnosis, patients with DLBCL exhibit a profound intestinal dysbiosis. This dysbiosis is notable for a relative overrepresentation of Enterobacteriaceae family members, which, according to Bigenwald and Zitvogel, is a robust and independent predictive factor for febrile neutropenia on RCHOP and relapse after treatment. These findings could pave the way for the development of biomarkers and therapies focused on the microbiota in patients with DLBCL. They also raised the possibility that gut dysbiosis may need to be addressed in newly diagnosed patients. Bigenwald and Zitvogel say the findings show a vicious circle between intestinal enterobacteriaceae, systemic inflammation, and immunosuppression, febrile neutropenia, and relapse. Therefore, the authors write, Restoring gut eubiosis and intestinal barrier fitness may represent a mandatory prerequisite for full-fledged RCHOP efficacy. Specific interventions could include use of a high-fiber diet, prebiotics, probiotics, or fecal microbiota transplant. However, more involved clinical studies are needed to validate the findings of Yoon and colleagues. By clarifying the influence of gut microbiota on febrile neutropenia occurrence and treatment outcomes, it may be possible to optimize outcomes for patients with DLBCL undergoing RCHOP chemotherapy. The next research article is entitled, The NF1A ETO2 Fusion Blocks Urethroid Maturation and Induces Pure Urethroid Leukemia in Cooperation with Mutant TP53 by Maria Riera Piquet-Boras of the University of Basel in Switzerland and colleagues. 
Acute erythroleukemia is a rare and aggressive malignancy marked by uncontrolled accumulation of erythroid progenitors. One subtype that has been described is pure erythroid leukemia, which is also known as AML-M6B, or D. Guglielmo disease. Although the genomic landscape of acute erythroleukemia is heterogeneous, the most prevalent lesions are mutations in the TP53 tumor suppressor gene. In almost all patients with pure erythroid leukemia, tumor cells carry mono- or biallelic mutations that primarily affect the DNA-binding domain of TP53. And in mouse models of myeloproliferative neoplasms, loss of TP53 precipitates erythroleukemia-like phenotypes. Despite their prevalence, the role of TP53 mutations in acute erythroleukemia is poorly understood, though in recent work in diseases such as diamond black fan anemia, TP53 activation was shown to mediate erythroblast cell cycle arrest, apoptosis, and normal erythroid differentiation in human cells. There is another interesting genomic alteration that has been identified in pure erythroid leukemia, and that is a chromosomal translocation leading to expression of a fusion between nuclear factor 1A, or NF1A, and ETO2. NF1A is a transcription factor that is a key regulator of erythroid differentiation during early hematopoiesis, while ETO2 is a transcriptional co-repressor that plays a role in maintenance of hematopoietic stem cells and in differentiation of erythroid progenitor cells. To date, NF1A-ETO2 fusions have been identified exclusively in pediatric patients with pure erythroid leukemia. Similar to TP53 mutations, the exact function of NF1A-ETO2 fusions in pure erythroid leukemia remains unclear. Now P.K. Boras and co-authors are reporting that this fusion blocks erythroid maturation in this setting. It also leads to induction of pure erythroid leukemia, but only in cooperation with mutant TP53. In their investigations, designed to provide a better understanding of the pathogenesis of pure erythroid leukemia, P.K. Boras focused on expression of the NF1A-ETO2 fusion in mouse erythroblasts. They found that in both erythroleukemia cells and fetal liver-derived erythroblasts, NF1A-ETO2 significantly increased cell proliferation and impaired terminal erythroid differentiation. However, when transplanted into irradiated syngeneic mice, erythroblasts expressing NF1A-ETO2 did not acquire clonogenic activity or disease-inducing potential. However, that changed in the presence of TP53R248Q, one of the mutations most commonly found in the erythroleukemias. In the context of this TP53 mutation, expression of NF1A-ETO2 produced aberrant clonogenic activity and induced a highly penetrant erythroleukemia in mice. Further molecular studies provided clues as to how NF1A-ETO2 interferes with erythroid differentiation. Their observations, as detailed in the current edition of Blood, show that NF1A-ETO2 binds to mostly active chromatin and represses key regulators of terminal erythroid differentiation that contain nuclear factor I binding sites and or associated with the ETO2 protein. Of note, TP53R248Q by itself did not impact erythroid differentiation. However, it did provide self-renewal and survival potential, primarily by downregulating TP53 targets. 
In a commentary, Benjamin J. Huang and Kevin Shannon of the University of California, San Francisco, say these findings illustrate how the NF1A ETO2 fusion perturbs erythropoiesis, and further, how it cooperates with mutant TP53 and leukemogenesis. Collectively, they say, the results support a model in which NF1A ETO2 enforces an immature and proliferative state in cells that are partially committed to the erythroid lineage. The fact that NF1A ETO2 alone was not sufficient to initiate leukemia is actually consistent with observations regarding other leukemia-associated transcription factor fusions. The data are broadly similar, they add, to previous investigations looking at the cooperative and competitive effects of oncogenic NRAS-KRAS alleles and TP53 inactivation in leukemogenesis. Overall, the findings of the study by P.K. Boras and co-investigators suggest that the NF1A ETO2 fusion protein contributes to the development of pure erythroid leukemia by inhibiting gene expression programs involved in terminal erythroid differentiation. Furthermore, NF1A ETO2 cooperates with mutant TP53 to induce erythroleukemia in mice. Altogether, these are important insights into molecular mechanisms underlying this rare and aggressive leukemia subtype. The final article is titled, Effectiveness of Nermotrelvir plus Ritonavir Treatment for Patients with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia During the Omicron Surge. The first author is Tamar Todmore of B'nai Zion Medical Center in Haifa, Israel. In patients with CLL, infections have long been a major driver of morbidity and leading cause of death. The morbidity and mortality risks are particularly high in subgroups of patients, including the elderly, those with comorbid conditions, and those who have been heavily pretreated for CLL. Clearly, the COVID-19 pandemic has heightened concerns regarding infection-related risks in patients with CLL. Reports have demonstrated that patients with CLL infected with SARS-CoV-2 are at increased risk of persistent disease, complications, and death compared to the general population. Omicron, which became a dominant variant in 2022, has been characterized as causing a milder form of COVID-19 disease, both in the general population and in patients with hematologic malignancies. However, increased COVID-19-related risks persist even in the era of the Omicron variant and even when patients are vaccinated. Thus, developing effective COVID-19 treatments is critical to reduce morbidity and mortality in patients with CLL. The oral protease inhibitor Nermotrelvir, when co-administered with ritonavir, has been shown to reduce the incidence of hospitalization and death in high-risk, non-hospitalized adults with COVID-19. This benefit was observed primarily in patients over 65 years of age during the Omicron surge. Now, Todd Moore and co-authors are reporting specifically on the effectiveness of Nermotrelvir plus ritonavir among adult patients with CLL and SARS-CoV-2 infection. Their retrospective analysis included all patients with CLL in a large healthcare system in Israel affected with SARS-CoV-2 between January 2nd and September 20th, 2022. January 2nd was the date that Nermotrelvir was first available to patients in that healthcare system, and September 20th was when the mRNA Omicron booster was first administered. During that study period, PCR-confirmed outpatient SARS-CoV-2 infections occurred in 1,080 out of 2,929 active patients with CLL in the database. About two-thirds were male, and the median age was 71 years. Nearly all patients had received the BNT162B mRNA vaccine. 94% received at least two shots, and 54% received at least four. 
All patients were eligible for Nermatrelvir treatment due to assessment as being at high risk for severe COVID-19 disease. The median time to Nermatrelvir treatment was one day, with about 23% treated on the same day as the positive PCR result, and 63% treated the next day. Only 11% were treated after two days, and less than 3% were treated after three or four days. Altogether, 292 patients received Nermatrelvir treatment, of whom 13, or 4.4%, required hospitalization related to COVID-19. Two patients died, one during hospitalization and another before being hospitalized. So altogether, 14 patients, or 4.8%, had a COVID-19-related hospitalization or death. By comparison, the event rate was 10.2% in CLL patients who did not receive Nermatrelvir treatment. Treatment with Nermatrelvir translated into a 53% relative risk reduction in COVID-19-related hospitalization or death from any cause. The relative risk reduction was 69% in patients who were 65 years or older who received Nermatrelvir. In multivariate analyses, significant improvements in outcomes after Nermatrelvir treatment were seen in patients older than 65 years and in patients heavily pretreated for CLL, as well as those with comorbidities, recent hospitalizations, or IVIG treatment. In a commentary, Karsten Utoft Nyman of Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark said this study demonstrates the positive impact of antiviral treatment with Nermatrelvir plus Ritonavir on patients with CLL testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. Although the study is retrospective, Nyman writes, the work by Todd Moore et al. demonstrates for the first time that an intervention to reduce the severity of the infection by early antiviral treatment following a positive SARS-CoV-2 test can reduce the risk of hospitalization and death for patients with CLL. Importantly, the study also identifies elderly patients with CLL, patients with other comorbid conditions, and patients who are heavily pretreated as those with the greatest potential benefit from early treatment with Nermatrelvir plus Ritonavir. That highlights the importance of identifying specific patient subsets that could be included in prospective clinical trials testing interventions to reduce infection risk. According to Nyman, the present study results could have implications for current CLL guidelines on vaccination and infection prophylaxis. He said that guidelines may now be supplemented with the recommendation of Nermatrelvir plus Ritonavir as soon as possible after testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 in CLL patients who are over 65, are heavily pretreated, are receiving immunoglobulin replacement therapy, or are at increased infection risk due to specific comorbidities. In parallel, he concluded, studies need to be conducted to optimize early treatment and prevention of infections, which may ultimately improve outcomes for patients with CLL. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.